Okay, I'm glad you're here. So uh, I want to talk about report cards and I want to talk about midlife. <laughs> so what's the connection between report cards and midlife? Um, when, we're, when we're growing up, you know how you're doing. Uh, when I was growing up, like sort of like the, the, the big most popular mayor of New York was, uh, his name was Ed Koch. He actually, my, my dad actually went to high school with him in Newark. Um, but he was famous for this catchphrase. He would go around saying, how am I doing? How am I doing? Right? So I think he was mayor for, for eight years or something like that. And, and he was famous for saying that. And um, the thing is with us, after you leave grade school or college, it's really hard to know how you're doing. <laughs> because, you know, in simpler times, you know, you either got an A, a B, a C, a D, right? You know, at Harvard, they didn't give out Fs, they gave out Es, which I always thought was really annoying. Like, why do you have to be different, right? You know, but I guess after D comes E, so anyway. I once got, I got an E one time on an essay, <laughs> and uh, in fairness to the teacher, I misspelled the name of the poem and the author of the poem <laughs> in this page and a half essay. <laughs> So I guess I deserved an E for that. But uh, anyway, um, so, so it's hard to know because as we sort of uh, advance through life, there are all these different variables. You know, you have your, your family life, you have your business life, you have your social life, you have, you know, all sorts of different uh, categories in your life. And you might be doing better in one and less good in the other. And it's like very hard to get clarity how you're doing. Now, let me tell you something about um, uh, when the Jews were in the desert. Because I, I haven't heard anyone else put it this way before. But, you know, if you just kind of think about what the Torah is saying, it leads to this conclusion. Which is that when the man fell, that's the, the bread from heaven, right? And by the way, famous thing, the Chassam Sofer brings in. What blessing did they say over the man, right? The, remember what man was. Man was, it says in Gomorrah Yuma, Rabbi Akiva says that man was condensed light, right? So it was like light, heavenly light that would be compacted into a materiality, and that's what man was. And it was fully digested. Like, one would never have to go to the bathroom after man, because it just was fully, completely digested in the body, because it was light, essentially, condensed light. So the question is, what blessing did they say over the man? So the answer is, Right? Blessed are you, God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the heavens. Right? Now, normally we say, normally we say on bread, but they would say, So the Gemara explains that where the man fell, how close the man fell to your tent, that was a sign of how well you were doing. So in other words, if it fell right by your tent, then that means, all right, you're getting it right. Because you just sort of like get your morning paper and your bagels would be sort of like the home delivered, you know, it would be right there at your doorstep and everything would be cool. Otherwise, you might have to actually hike for quite a while to get your bread. Now, there's a question, I don't know the answer to this, but how did you know which man was yours and which man was someone else's? I don't know. But apparently they knew. And they knew to the extent, see if I can pronounce this right, that it was judiciable, meaning to say that you could actually use it in a court of law. 
And the example that the um, Gomorrah gives is that if there was a, um, a, uh, a legal battle over who a slave belonged to, meaning to say who was the master of that person, where that person's man fell, like if it fell at this person's tent, then that was proof that he belonged to them. So God was actually, you know, the judge and was deciding court cases as well. You know, so, so, so there you have uh, an example of, of, of how everyone knew where their man was. And more importantly, um, for us right now, that there was a direct correlation between how you were doing and where your man fell. Which means to say, if you think about it, every day you got a heavenly report card. Right? So that's kind of cool. Because you could say, wow, I woke up this morning, the man was right outside my tent. What did I do yesterday? What did I do right? You know, you think about it. Oh, you know, I actually apologized to that guy because I was kind of a jerk. Well, God must have really liked that, you know? Or if you had to really hike for your man, what did I do yesterday? Oh, I really got mad at that person. Probably I shouldn't have. So maybe that's, maybe, oh, you know what? I'm going to go and try to correct that. And let's say you did, and your man fell at your, your doorstep the next morning. Then you knew you got it right. You know, so, so, it's, it's, so we don't have that today. That's the point. We don't have that today. So life gets much more confusing in terms of sort of like, trying to, to keep track of things. Now, I want to connect that because the man started falling this month, this month that we're in right now in the ER. And there are two opinions when it started falling, either the 15th of ER or Lagba Omer. So the 15th of ER is coming up. But this is, this is when it started happening. And this month of ER that we're in right now is a really interesting month because it has this... Um, two sort of sides, two sort of personalities to it. On the one side, it's sort of like a little bit anonymous because no one really talks about ER ever, right? And on the other hand, for me, it symbolizes all of life. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. Because to understand ER, you have to understand it in a block of three, all right? So remember, when we got the mitzvah to make a calendar, the very first month of the year is Nisan, Nisan is the springtime. It's a real headline month. Nisan contains the, the word nes, which means miracles. It's a month of miracles. It's huge. We're leaving Egypt in Nisan. Nisan, the, 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 the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert was dedicated in Nisan. There's, there's a lot to say on behalf of Nisan, right? Then you get to ER. Not much going on in ER. <laughs> then you get to Sivan. Sivan, we reach Mount Sinai and we get the Torah at Mount Sinai, the most climactic, history-changing event, right? So ER is like kind of in the middle. Nothing really going on in ER for the most part. Um, and yet, that's kind of like, to me, this whole idea of how am I doing? You don't know how you're doing because, you know, why it symbolizes life to me? Because... You know, beginnings are very eventful. Endings, climaxes, very eventful. But what about the middle part? Because most of our life is really spent in the middle. And that's why it's so interesting to me that the acronym, the Roche Tevos for ER, it's spelled Aleph Yud Yud Resh, 
Remember, Yud and Yud, when they're together, is, is, is a spelling of the name of God. So what does Aleph Yud Yud Resh stand for? A verse in the Torah. Ani Hashem Rofecha. I am Hashem, your healer. So this is the month of healing. So that, to me, is really interesting, that the middle correlates with healing. See, you might have thought, the Torah, I think, is telling us something very revelatory here. If you asked me, the beginning, the middle, the end, which one would be the time for healing, I would have told you the end. Because the end is usually when things break down and just sort of fall apart. That's when a person needs healing the most. And yet, the Torah seems to be telling us, you know when a person needs healing the most? In the middle. In the middle, when it's not so clear how a person is doing, they need healing in order to keep on going. The strength to, t- to keep on going is, to me, the essence of life. That's the essence of life, you know? When you, when you just sort of, like, launch something, it sort of has an, an inherent momentum. It doesn't need any outside help because it's got this inherent momentum. At the end, when things sort of crash and burn, well, they're crashing and burning, right? So that's kind of the thing. But what about the middle when one has to sort of like start really pedaling really hard in order to keep on going? Where does one derive the strength to do that? And that's why I think that the middle month, which symbolizes most of our lives, ER, is the month of healing. Because that's when we need the most support. So, so along those lines, maybe we get in another insight into healing. Because the Roshe Tevos, the, the month of ER, also stands for something else that's very famous. Which is, remember, it's Aleph Yud Yud Resh. It stands for Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and Rachel. Okay, so that's sort of, you know, then we kind of run out of letters. We could have kept on going, right? But that's our holy fathers and mothers, basically. Rachel being sort of symbolizing, you know, uh, the matriarchs. So, you know, knowing who you are and what your mission is, that's a lot in terms of what can keep a person going. And, um, you know, I heard a story one time, it's kind of a parable, um, but I thought it was very beautiful, which was a father sends a child out on a, on a long journey. It's an important mission that the child has to do. And um, the child gets lost, right? Because at some point in our lives, uh, we all get lost. You know, there's a, there's a famous... There's a famous uh, Hasidic story about, actually there are a lot of stories, just interestingly, about getting lost in forests. And that's just sociologically, or it's just sort of interesting, because there were big forests all over the place, and it was really easy to get lost in them, you know? So it just makes sense that there are a lot of stories about getting lost in forests. But, but in this particular one... Um, a guy's wandering around for like days. He's like losing his mind. Like he has no idea like which is the proper way. And he finds an old man and he's so happy. He's like, ah, oh, thank God. He goes up to the old man. He says, which is the way out? He goes, you know what? I hate to tell you, I'm lost myself. 
he says, but I can tell you which way not to go. Right? So there's a, there's a lot there also. You know, I just got to tell you something, which is you reach a certain point talking about the middle of our lives, you know, and one can set whatever parameters they like. I think the middle of our lives sort of starts after college, probably. Um, but anyway, you can, you can decide on your own. But... Um, I'm sorry, I forgot the thought. So let's, let's go back to this story. So the father um, sends his son out on this mission, and the son gets lost at a certain point. Oh, that's what I wanted to say. The, the, the real, I think, question is not, did you get lost? It's now that you're lost, what are you going to do? Mm. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, they, they kind of get shocked by the wrong things. You know what I mean? I don't know if any of you were watching Silicon Valley, but there's this, <laughs> there's this character who's like this bizarre billionaire venture capitalist, and, and he's asking one of the characters, um, have you ever been to Burger King? <laughs> and he keeps on emphasizing the word king, which is like, it just, it's not the rhythm of the thing. Some people just get caught on the, the wrong thing. You know what I mean? It's sort of like the, the point is not, did you get lost? The point is, now that you're lost, what are you going to do? You know, I once heard Reb Shlomo say one time, the question is not how much do you love someone when you love them. The question is how much do you love someone when you hate them? <laughs> that's, that's the real question. You know, that's what's going to cement the relationship. Not how much do you love them when you love them. How much do you love them when you hate them? You know, and that's especially, if it's true for us and each other, how much more is it true for us and God? Right? So, so, so how do you rebound? How do you rebound when you get lost? So I said to you that um, one of the, I think, keys to understanding why ER is the month of healing, remember ER is Aleph, Yud, Yud, Resh, Ani, Hashem, Rofecha, but it's also Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and Rachel. So how is that a secret to healing? So knowing where you come from is also a key to gaining strength and being able to propel yourself forward during challenging moments. So back to this parable, this father sends his son on this like long, dangerous mission, whatever it is, and it's very complicated, and the son gets lost. And he sees a sign, and it's one of those signs, I love these signs, you know. I, I remember they used to have one in MASH. I think that's the first one, time I saw it. But they, they always see pictures of it. They're very exotic. They're wooden. It's a wooden pole. And it's signs that point in every direction. Like towns in every, or cities in every direction. Have you ever seen one of those? Right? So, but the problem is this, this pole fell. And he doesn't know which direction. So it's, it's of no use. Right? And then this being a smart kid says, well, wait a second, I don't know which direction I'm going in, but I know where I came from. You see? So he finds the name of his town on the sign, and he points it behind him, and now he knows the direction that he has to go in. You hear? The chills, you know? That's, that's, that's a very powerful idea. You know? So again, how is ER which is the month of healing, Ani Hashem Rofecha. Remember, ER is the middle. We're, we're, we're in the desert on the way to Sinai in ER. 
Nisan, we've left Egypt. Sivan, we arrive. But you got to get through Er to get to Sivan. <laughs> right? You got to get through the desert in order to get to Mount Sinai. And it's easy to get lost. Right? Remember, let's just recount a couple of events that happen in, in... Well, let's just focus on one event that happens in Er. We run out of food in the middle of the desert. That's a pretty challenging moment. Two and a half, three million people out of food in the middle of a desert. Right? And that's when the mind starts falling. I mean, this amazing, amazing, amazing event. So knowing where you come from can, can really inform your future as well. But, you know, it's not so simple. That's not so simple. Because you have to make it your own at the same time. You can't just... You can't just copy someone else. You know, there's a story about um, the successor to the, the Sfas Emes among the Ger Rebbe's. The, 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 the Ger Rebbe chain of Rebbe's was phenomenal, you know, starting with the Chidusha Rim and next with the Sfas Emes and the Imre Emes and just a, a line of amazing, amazing Rebbe's. And when the Rebbe, I, I'm not sure, maybe it was the Imre Emes, I'm not sure, whoever took over for the Sfas Emes, those were very big shoes to fill. He was kind of doing his own thing. And some of the older Hasidim, or even the younger Hasidim, were like, Rebbe, how come you're not, your, your father would do it like this? Why aren't you doing it like this? And he said, do you really want someone who's just a copycat to be your Rebbe? <laughs> right? Like, isn't the whole point that I'm doing, like, I'm locked in in a very real, unique way. Isn't that why I'm the Rebbe? So they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, keep on going, keep on going. So, you know, so, so there's a famous event in Torah where, um, where I think we see sort of like a, a classic example of this, which is, which is Yitzchak is the son of Abraham. And apparently, I know Rabbi Wine talks about this quite a bit, which is that, historically speaking, you don't see this happen too often, where world-class great people, history-making people, have world-class history-making sons. You don't see it that often, which is kind of depressing. And they say that one of the reasons is because the reason why the father was this world-class, you know, epic-making guy was in part because he wasn't spending much time with his son, you know? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a bit depressing. Or sometimes it's a psychological thing where sometimes the, the psychology of the son is, is that, well, I can't even match that, so why should I even try? And they sort of get buried, you know, and intimidated. And so you, you have that dynamic as well. There are probably a lot of different reasons, you know? But anyway, here's an example where you don't see it, happily for us, which is that Yitzchak was amazing. Yitzchak was off the charts, and he was the son of Abraham. And it could have been incredibly easy for Yitzchak to have been thoroughly intimidating, intimidated by having a father like Abraham. Remember, Abraham is meeting with the kings. He's meeting with kings. He has a currency. He has his own gold coin. 
right, which, which was the currency of the age because everyone knew it was the most trusted and reliable. So, and then, and then the fact that God is talking to him and all the rest, I mean, you know, we, we don't have to explain the greatness of Abraham, but, but you have this event which is sort of like a key, perhaps, into the mind of Yitzchak, where one of the things that, you know, in a, in a desert uh, environment, one of the things that's, that, that's like gold, or as precious, or maybe even more precious than gold, is water. You need water. And anyone who's digging springs in the middle of the desert, that's like striking oil in, a, in an even more significant way, depending on, you know, the geography and everything like that. By the way, just as an aside, they say one of these sort of unheralded turning points that's going on in the Middle East right now, in terms of something that might shift the whole kind of political um, uh, situation there, is the fact that Israel has come up with a desalinization plant, which is world-class, like the leading one in the world right now. And what that means is they're able to take ocean water, which is salt water, and turn it into drinking water. And this is like, this is totally revolutionary. This is amazing. This is an amazing thing they've done. Very expensive, and they're now exporting this technology around the world. I think San Diego is experimenting with Israeli technology on this and everything like that. So anyway, just to highlight that to this day, finding water in desert areas is, is hugely important and, and game-changing. So, um, so, so Abraham digs these wells, lots of wells. He has lots of success in this way. And the Plish team, sort of like his, the, the local antagonists, plug up the wells, you know, just because that's what they're doing. And then it says Yitzchak redigs the wells of his father, right? And he, he, he calls them after the name that his father called them, because all the wells had different names. And so, so on a deeper level, look at, look at what Yitzchak was doing. He was making it his own because he was digging the well and they were his wells. But you know what? Simultaneously, they were also the wells of his father and he was calling them the names that his father called them. So as, an, as a generation, as an intergenerational thing, that's this beautiful thing where it's sort of like you're making it your own, you're doing it your own way, but at the same time, you're locking into the ways of your holy mothers and fathers. Right? So this is our challenge. This is our challenge. How do you make it new and old at the same time? Right? I remember sitting with someone who is very wise and older and everything like that. And, you know, we were talking about life and existence. And he was kind of just brainstorming on truth and everything like that. And I was trying to tell him, you don't have to come up with it. We have libraries on this subject. You, you don't have to start from scratch. Do you, know what, do you know the information that we have? You know, so... It's... Uh, all right. So, so now, I want to continue on with this idea with just the how am I doing, right? Because again... When we're in grade school, high school, college, I guess grad school even, we get grades and we know how we're doing. And then once we get out of the school structure, 
it becomes very, very confusing how we're doing because we don't know what to emphasize and which var variable to necessarily, you know, prioritize. And so, so, so what are we supposed to do? And, and, and then something potentially very toxic happens, which is that the society that you're in will then define success for you. Right? They'll say, well, how many zeros do you have on your bank account? That's, that's, that's your report card. That's your report card. Or what's your, you know, how famous are you? That, that's your report card. You know, and I would say that that's pretty much the two major ones that America has plopped down on right now. Money and fame. <laughs> Those are pretty much, pretty much it. You know, I'm sure they've got other ones as well, but that's, let, let's, let's stick to those for now. And so that becomes very existentially difficult because if you then are going to adapt their grading standards, when they're not necessarily your grading standards, or even more meaningfully, they're not true, then, then what do you do? It's, it's one of the... It's one of the most challenging things because it means that a person has to be able to define for themselves what is success. And, and, and this is something every single person must do. Every person must do this. I'll tell you why. Because if you don't define it, other people will define it for you. And they'll put you in that box. And that can be a very horrible form of uh, imprisonment. It's like emotional imprisonment. And how do you get out of it? When I'm, I'm living as the, 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 the captive of Us Magazine for the rest of my life? Like, really? How did that happen? How did I allow People Magazine, Entertainment Weekly to become my master? How did that happen exactly? So... So the, 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 the tragic aspect of this is, is that if you go up to any person and say, would you like to be a success? They'll go, yes, of course I'd like to be a success. Would you like to be a big success? Oh man, I'd love to be a big success. What's success? Huh. <laughs> would you work really hard to be a big success? Yeah. Would you even perhaps, you know, sacrifice your happiness? Maybe if it's a big enough success. So what's success? Huh, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> so how, hor how horrific, really, is that? Where you have a scenario where people are ready to dive in front of a bus for something and they, they can't even define it. Or if they were to define it, they would be like, you know what, you dive in front of the bus. I'm doing very well over here reading my book on the bench here in the park in the shade. So, so the Torah has a number of stories, and I want to just share one with you. This is very much told as a true story, and it's either in the Gomorrah or it's in the Medrash. I know it's brought down by Reb Chaim Shmulevitz in Sichos Musar. And the story goes like this. I wish I could tell you the names, but I haven't got them. But Arav is sitting with a student. And it's just the two of them in a room. And this student was very slow. 
And every day, the teacher would have to say over the lesson a hundred times for the student to understand it. Literally a hundred times. And this was their routine. And say it a hundred times, and finally he'd get it at the end. So this one particular day, the Rav is saying it over, and someone interrupts them. Someone walks in in the middle of the class and asks the, it's just the two of them, asks the rabbi, oh, are you going to such and such a place later on? And he says, yeah, I am. And he goes, um, okay. Um, and then they go back to the lesson. And after a hundred times, he doesn't get it. Two hundred times, he doesn't get it. Three hundred times, he doesn't get it. Finally, after four hundred times, he gets it. And he, and he says, you know, because you had that conversation, I thought that you were going to leave in the middle of our lesson, and so I, I especially couldn't concentrate today. But he didn't stop till he got it, and after 400 times, the student finally has the lesson. A heavenly voice is heard that says to the rabbi, as a reward for this, you can have one of two things, either... Everyone in your generation is going to get olam haba, you know, life in the next world. Or you can have an exceedingly long life. And so he says, I, I'll take olam haba, the next world, for everyone in my generation. Better that. And they said, because you chose that, you will also get an exceedingly long life. Mm-hmm. Now, let's think about this for a moment, this story for a moment. Because I think here you really see a key into the Jewish view of how God runs the world. Which is that you've got two people sitting alone in a room, changing the entire destiny of the world. Do you hear that? Two different people, two, two people alone in a room, right? Neither of whom are like famous or rich, sitting together in a room and the effort and the love and the Torah between them, alone in a room, is transforming the entire generation. That's an amazing thing. That's an incredibly empowering thing. You know, you'll hear many stories like this. I'll tell you one, which you're probably familiar with, that Harry Truman was really on the fence about recognizing the state of Israel when, when, when the UN did it. Because the UN did it, but remember, the UN was a pretty brand new organization. And it didn't carry all that much weight with the rest of the countries. Like, it would take a country like the United States, which had just won World War II, to sort of like um, affirm the fact that the Jews had just gotten a state in Israel for it to have teeth and for it to be meaningful. And Harry Truman was like, not so sure that he wanted to do that. So in comes his Jewish friend, who he owned a hat shop with, like 50 years earlier or something like that. After World War I, they were buddies and opened a a haberdashery shop. That means a hat shop, right? If you ever see that in an old book. (laughs) I always used to scratch my head, what is haberdashery? So they had a hat store together, which I think went under, by the way. And he says to him, and he's basically crying in the Oval Office to him, saying, you've got to recognize the state of Israel. And Harry Truman's like, can't say no to his 
<laughs> buddy, and says, okay. Now, there are many examples of that. I'll give you, I'll give you another example of that, which is um, I met someone from uh, Paraguay, and his grandfather was the, um, the doctor, the personal doctor of the dictator of Paraguay, okay? And the UN vote was about to take place. Now, this is before they even had the votes for Israel to win. And every vote was absolutely a thousand percent crucial. And he was going to, he, they didn't know how he was going to vote. And he gets a telegram, right? Um, this doctor, this Jewish doctor, gets a telegram from the, from the Jewish agency, and it's in code. And it says, the patient is not responding to treatment. And he understands what that means, that, that the dictator, I'm forgetting his name, Strauss, Straussman, Strauss, something like this. So, so he, he goes and he says to him, if you don't vote for the state of Israel, I'm never, me, I'm not treating you as a doctor anymore, and me and my family are never going to talk to you again. <laughs> this is like a, this, a very feared dictator. And the guy says, okay, so he votes for Israel. <laughs> right, this is one of the crucial votes that, that brought Israel into being after 2,000 years. So what I'm trying to tell you is, with these three stories, the two people learning together alone in a room, which gets olam haba for the entire generation, right? The Harry Truman, you know, recognizing the state of Israel. This dictator of Paraguay voting for the state of Israel. All these were just because of personal relationships. In other words, here you see how world history turns on just one person and another person who have an established relationship and friendship, making a decision together, coming to an agreement together. And then world events then turn. And it's no less true with you and me in terms of our daily lives. It's no less true. And I want to tell you something. I promise you this with all of my heart. I promise you, promise you, promise you with all of my heart that this next thing I'm telling you is absolutely true. In the end of days, in the end of days, the history of the world is going to be rewritten. Okay? And when you look back, like in 1973, for instance, or four, whatever it was, the headline of world history is not going to be Nixon resigns in the Watergate scandal. It's going to be this person didn't get mad at that person, <laughs> or this person lent that person some money, or this person went out of his way when it was really hard to do something for that person. It's going to be all the chesed, all of the kindness that we've done for each other, all the sacrifice that we've done for each other, and all the goodness that we've done for each other, and those are going to be the headlines of all of history. And you're going to see how all of those things culminated and led to different domino chains of events which brought about the redemption and the healing of the world. I promise you, 
I promise you that that's true. I promise you. So, so the, the amazing thing about Torah is it's this, and, and you see, if you investigate world events, you see that all of this is corroborated. You know? It's so easy to learn history in a textbook way where it's sort of like, well, and then the Council of Trent got together and they made a certain vote. Well, why did they make this certain vote? You think that this person so believed in that? This person was angry at that guy and it's like, oh, you think I'm going to vote with you? You'll see I'm going to vote against you. So why was that? Oh, it was over this argument over like the check at dinner. You know what I mean? I mean, something crazy. But that's literally how world events happen. So, you know, I, I, I was at a, a speech yesterday and a, a dear friend who speaks all over the world was, was, was speaking and, and everything like that. And, and I was sitting next to actually a guy, another incredibly special guy, who like changed his life they, with a, a conversation. And, and the person who I was sitting next to, the person who changed the other guy's life or redirected him on this course where this person is inspiring people all over the world. You know, he himself is not like a guy who travels around giving big speeches. But it's just, it was another example to me how, you know, he went out of his way for this person. And you just see, again, the domino effect of the way things happen. So I want to tell you something with that in mind, and we'll start to wrap it up. And this is a halacha. And it's a really interesting halacha because it's so far-reaching. It's a, it's a mitzvah in the Torah. It's so far-reaching. And for some reason, I, I, I don't think it's properly emphasized as like a core principle in Judaism. And what it is, is it's don't take revenge. Now, you would think like when you hear the word revenge, that's a very bloody sounding word, right? Like I'm like imagining a guy, you know, with a sword and it's like, you know, like blood is running off it, you know, and sort of like, don't do that. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, well, you know, but, but how does the Torah define revenge? So it's actually stunning because it's so the opposite side of the spectrum. So I'm going to use my own words, but here is the Torah explanation of revenge. If you go to borrow someone's lawnmower, by, if you go to borrow someone's lawnmower and the person says no, right? And then sometime later, that person who wouldn't lend you their lawnmower comes to your house and asks you to borrow some milk. And you say, you know what? You didn't lend me the lawnmower, so I'm not lending you the milk. That's the Torah definition of revenge. Now, that's fascinating because imagine all of the pettiness that will get uprooted if a person actually understands that and puts that in their own life. Now, listen to this. The Torah in the, it's a, there's a companion mitzvah to that, which is don't bear a grudge. What is, what is the definition of don't bear a grudge? I go to borrow your lawnmower, you say, no. Sometime later, you come to borrow some milk, and I say to you, you know what? I'm going to lend you the milk, even though you didn't lend me the lawnmower. <laughs> Not allowed to say that. That's called bearing a grudge. <laughs> 
right? You can wield your ethical superiority over the other person, your character refinement, and use it as a club on the other person. <laughs> now, again, the reason why I think this is sort of like headline news, those two mitzvahs, is because how small they are. Well, they're hard to do. They're, they're hard to do. I don't want to underestimate the, the difficulty of them. But in terms of sort of microsurgery, in terms of human dynamics, in man, is that zeroing in? That's some, that's some like laser type stuff. In terms of really, like, you know, if you think of like, um, you know, cholesterol blockages of arteries, you know what I mean? How like certain relationships can get sort of like stuck. If, if there's this blood flow, if there's this flow of communication and, you know, whatever it is, then everything functions in a much more healthy way. And this idea of not bearing revenge or, or a grudge, these are things that are going to keep, you know, relationships together and communities together and everything like that. And what did we just say? History turns on these relationships existing, you know, because that's how it's going to happen, with people communicating and doing stuff for each other and all the rest. All right, we'll stop there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I was just going to say about the grudge thing. I was just thinking about like the grudge thing recently and like it's about how you're saying about how it's about the interpersonal part of it, how right. sacred that is. The thing about it like those those impulses to make those little comments like where you do lend the milk but you want to say that little thing. Right. Is that there's only really two things like either the person who is talking to you they already remember that they didn't let they know so you don't need to make the little right. comment right or they forgot and maybe they're a different because if the world is recreated every nanosecond then they're a new person who might lend you the lawnmower today do you know what i mean so right. i don't know right. if this is thing about that yeah it's true and by the way it could be they didn't want to lend you the lawnmower it just could be it's a low percentage thing but maybe they promised it to someone else who's coming over later. You don't know. You, you don't know. Or maybe it's not theirs, and they borrowed it from someone else, and they don't really have permission to lend it to you. Sometimes those are also part of the story, and you never get to that point. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. In, in Jewish thought, how... What is our responsibility, like the, the gentleman was talking about, like if you have a friend, like moral, or, you know, if they're not doing right or whatever, what, like, where is the line drawn between our responsibility to, like, our, you know, <laughs> Right. I think that, that, in, that in today's day and age, that our primary responsibility, like Rabbi Israel Salanter, the head of the Musser movement, the founder of the Musser movement, Famously said one time that when I, he said, when I was younger, I wanted to change my community. Then as I got older, I wanted, I saw that was kind of hard. I, I said, I'm going to change my family. And then he said, as I got older, I said, I hope I'll be able to change myself. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of the bottom line. I, I would say that if you want to inspire others, that the best way to do it is to make yourself into someone who they would like to be, you know? And then once you make yourself into someone who's like a happening person in terms of, wow, 
they're always responsive, they're always kind, they're always giving, they're always in a good mood, whatever it is. I mean, these are high, high goals. But if you can be that type of person, then you will draw, they will come to you. And by the way, any real change that takes place in someone is, is, is change that the person themselves is inspired to make. If it's something that's coming from the outside, like, you know what, you're enjoying that too much. It's like, okay, for you, I'm going to try to enjoy it less. It's like, yeah. what? Like, good luck, <laughs> you know? Yeah, go ahead. Um, maybe you don't have an answer for it, but... I'm sure I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but um, how, would, how would one approach a situation when trying to... Trying to uh, mend a relationship or approach a relationship that, that we love is, is so covered over by so many things and so hidden. Yeah. Well, all those things are so um, individual. You know, uh, like, was it, is it Tolstoy, someone he's quoted all the time that the story of every happy family is more or less the same with the one of every sad or miserable family is like wildly different, you know. So how that how how that particular relationship got to be the way it is, like the the details are all meaningful, you know. And I, I don't know any of the the the, the things, but I, I I can tell you that if you are is it a situation where you are still interacting with the person or where you're not interacting with them anymore. Right, so sometimes, occasionally you're interacting with them, right? So, so I would say that, you know, the first place to go would be that when you're around them, to try to be just really positive and upbeat. And sometimes people take their cues from other people. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but where you don't like someone because you think they don't like you, but once you find out that they don't dislike you, all of a sudden, suddenly you like them. So sometimes people don't like another person just because they think that they don't like them. And so if you can send like positive energy and be upbeat, like when you're around the person, then they'll on some level think, maybe he's not as mad at me as I thought he was. And then that can be the beginning of perhaps some change around them. And to be very patient with those type of things because sometimes if it... Take, took a long time for it to get really super broken. Sometimes it takes a while to get back on track because a lot of relationships are based on trust. And, um, you know, they, they, they need to recover a trust, a sense of trust. And that, that takes place over a period of time. That doesn't just happen after one conversation, usually. I... I, I, that, I I don't have any details in, in your situation, but those are just some general ideas. Yeah, good. Just another thought on the idea of a yeah. midlife report card. Yeah. And that is that all you got to do is marry a good woman yeah. for a guy. And she generally acts as your midlife report card throughout your life. She's, you know, keeping yeah. you straight. And women seem to have a little more intuitive concept, that clarity of when they're on and off, and I think what happens in our generation, in our country, is that we get married so late 
that, you know, if we're waiting until our 30s to get married, we've gone through a good, you know, 15 years of no report cards or 12 years or whatever it is, and we get lost on the way. Right? Yeah, you know, they, uh, two things on that. One, what you're saying is straight from the Torah, because it says, um, it says about a woman in, in between Adam and Eve, right, Adam and Chava, that, that she's going to be a kinegdo. She's going to be opposite him. And so, so it's, it says that she's going to be a helpmate who will be opposite him. So it sounds like, well, if she's a helpmate, how is she going to be in opposition? And, and the Gomorrah explains that if the man is worthy, she'll be a helpmate. If the man is not worthy, she's going to give him a hard time, basically. But she's going to give him a hard time because he's not worthy, meaning to say he's doing something wrong. So that hard time is going to be something that ideally is going to put him on the proper path, right? But, um, you know, but that can be very complicated also because, because the man has to be on the level to receive that message and the woman has to be on the level to know how to properly elevate her, her, her partner, you know, so that's 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 the stuff of, you know, shalom bias and counseling and all sorts of stuff there. The other thing that you said, um, you said that what, what was it? You said two things. Oh yeah, the other thing is that a man, if he gets married later on in life, right? That that sometimes that's hard and and. You see another example from the Torah in that, which is that the Red Sea was supposed to split when it saw the Jews. One of the opinions is that the Red Sea was programmed from the beginning of creation that when the Jews got there, it would split. And we know that the Red Sea doesn't split for the Jews. And one of the explanations is that the Red Sea looked at these slaves which had sunk down to such a low level, which was us. Remember, the angels complained to God when the Egyptians got wiped out. And they said, what's the difference between these people, meaning the Egyptian soldiers who are trying to murder us, and those people, meaning us, the Jews? So, obviously we were not in the best shape, but okay, we had been slaves for hundreds of years. I mean, there's a reason why we were kind of beaten down and, and messed up. But anyway, the Red Sea... They say, they, you know, there's a, 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 a taina, like a complaint on the Red Sea. Why didn't you split for them? And it says, I didn't recognize them. So, in other words, a person can get so lost that they can see their soulmate and they don't recognize them. You know, because exile takes its toll. Exile takes its toll. It's a real thing. You can't be beaten repeatedly and it not have a, a mark on your personality or on your outlook. Okay. 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 Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir.